Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Saga of Ref the Sly. Part 3. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and on this episode, we are going to be discussing the third section of the Saga of Ref the Sly. For those of you following along at home, that is verse thingy 14 through 12. I will figure out what they're called after this <laughs> section is over. Uh, but before we get to that, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first one is. I've been loving the interviews I've been doing recently. We've had some real quality guests on. However, they've been mostly limited to people I know, obviously. There hasn't been a whole lot going on this year in terms of tournaments or events or cons or anything along those lines, and therefore my ability to get out and meet people and therefore invite them onto the show is somewhat limited. So, uh, it, it is the plan to eventually go and start getting more voices in here. Uh, the ones we've had are very good, but we want to get some other folks in here as well to make sure that there's all sorts of different perspectives coming at you. So, just wanted to make sure that you knew that that was the intention, and we're working towards it, and we'll see what the future holds. Before I get on to a little bit of game analysis, I just wanted to take a pause to thank you, you listening to this podcast right now, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This this sort of work is my most favorite thing in the world. This is the thing that brings me the most joy. Reading things, thinking about things, and then sharing those ideas, those thoughts with other people. And getting the feedback too. I absolutely love the interaction that I have with some of the very active members uh, who listen to this show. And so... You know, that back and forth, these these kind of thoughts, it, it, it's, it's really fulfilling. It's really a fantastic thing. And so, uh, again, I just want to thank you, whoever you are, wherever you are, for taking the time to share in this information. And, and hopefully it does you some good in your life. I don't expect you'd be sitting around if it didn't. But also know that you being there absolutely is just a wonderful thing for me as well. All right, moving on from the mushy stuff. Uh, I want to talk about my games. This last uh, couple of weeks, I had some fantastic games with some guys in my local uh, little gaming club. They are also people who do Balagarth. So that's how I met them. They're not necessarily folks, other folks from here in town. They're people that I converted from Balagarth after I got super into this. But uh, you know Kaji and TF. They've been on before. Angus will be on as well. And so we were having some excellent games. My first one was against Kaji. 500 point games, we're trying to get into it again. This was all of our first exposure to 9th edition after coming out of our cold freeze. So we were a little rusty. 
reviewing the rule book, making sure we did everything step by step as we went, uh, consulting FAQs if something was amiss or there was a question about policy. And so what I brought was a captain, a lieutenant, uh, Space Marines, by the way, uh, my own little custom chapter, but a captain, a lieutenant, a squad, a three-man squad of Blade Guard veterans, and then two groups of five assault intercessors. Of course, all armed to the teeth with melee weapons, because I'm sitting there thinking 500-point board, that's pretty small, looking at the dimensions, probably going to come to melee. I want to be really well-equipped to deal with this and to be able to go out there and seize objectives with confidence. And then he brings his list. And immediately I know there's an issue because uh, there were several really good units, including a broodlord in that list. But the one that really made me kind of intimidated was a Carnifex with a heavy Venom cannon. I didn't have an answer to that. There was no long range, like literally no long range except for pistols in this list I had built. And in round one, that Carnifex took all of my three blade guards off of the board. And I, I knew that I was in trouble from, from that point onwards. And I just marched up confidently up the field being like, I, I got four up in Vulns. I'm good to go. I was not, spoiler alert, I was not good to go. And so my assault intercessors tried to harry some and my, my captain actually did surprisingly well. I'd had him kitted out. He was the warlord. And so I had the Imperium's blade on him. And then there was, or, or the Imperium sword, Imperium sword. And then I had given him the burning blade. And so he was actually a bamf when it came to melee combat. And so he went up and, and in, after he charged, he killed the Carnifex. Uh, the way I like to visual it, visualize it is that he just walked up and <laughs> stabbed the Carnifex in the face. And then he moved on to kill a couple other uh, pretty high point things before being taken down by rippers. That There's little plinks. Little plinks will get at you. So yeah, that was the... That was that epic fail. <laughs> Kaji beat me rather soundly, but I took, I took lessons from that. I said, okay, I need to have answers for long range things and I need to be prepared to lose stuff. I need to be prepared to get hit and have to like worry about what comes from that. So my next uh, game was against Angus. Angus is an orcs player and he loves Killicans, loves them. And so he came with three groups of Killicans and some Ludas up top there. And I reworked my entire list. I was like, this, this isn't going to work. And so I, I gutted it and I started another one with a Primaris Tech Marine, a Redemptor Dreadnought, a and two squads of Intercessors. I don't have the list right in front of me. I feel ill prepared. But yeah, so I, I was going out there and he came with his cans. And for the most part, that Dreadnought did most of the work. It, it tore most things apart. The Primaris Tech Marine was no slouch either. He got, he got some stuff done. So that list was fantastic. I think I lost, what was it, one Intercessor in the course of that match. And so what I, what I learned from it was like, you need to be good in the melee because it's going to come to it. But if, if you don't have the ranged, you're still not getting there. It's easier to get to melee range, but you still have to get there. And so after kind of thinking about this and, and uh, trying to apply it other places, I had my game against TF. He plays Blood Angels exclusively. And against him, I, I like to take Death Guard or Gene Stealer Cult. The reason for this is I like, to, I like to tell stories in my head. Not anything that I necessarily share with anybody else, but just kind of little fun uh, setting scenarios for us to why this is taking place. And so Imperium on Imperium just feels weird 
I, I know there's absolutely sections of the Imperium where there is civil war occurring, but it is certainly not the norm. And so against him, I wanted to take my Death Guard. And I put together a list that focused on Blightlord Terminators. I had a nice little squad of those thick boys. And then I had the new Lord of Virulence. I just love the model just by itself. Just the Death Guard are so gross and I love it. So Lord of Virulence, that's my warlord. Uh, a foul blight spawn, extra spray bits, and then a crew of poxwalkers. So I go out there, and he's brought um, th uh, three dreadnoughts. He's got a fairly a focused dreadnought list, a squad of intercessors. Um, one of the dreadnoughts is a librarian, and one of them is Death Company. So round one, that Death Company dreadnought comes screaming across the board, and I go to meet it with my Blightlord Terminators. And I had to stick together. The new uh, Lookout Sir rule is, I mean, it's really, it makes sense, obviously. Like, if some dude is just in the back line with his butt hanging in the wind, it does make sense that you should be able to shoot that guy. I mean, you can see see them. They're right there. Like, literally right there. Singular. By themselves. You should be able to shoot them. That being said, Death Guard have a really hard problem with field control if we have to all stick together. But that eventually came down to it. Two of the uh, dreadnoughts had died, as had the intercessors. One of his dreadnoughts was holding an objective uh, kind of a ways away. And so my army was kind of shambling at him. Uh, he had gotten fairly tired. It was about 2, 3 in the morning <laughs> at that point. And he's a fairly early riser. So we called it at that point. But what I realized, I guess, where we're coming around to, is that even in the smaller games... It is important to at least have an answer for long-ranged capabilities. Do, we should not assume, just because the board is smaller, that that ranged capacity means anything less. Uh, yes, obviously, be prepped for melee combat. But also, some sort of answer, whether it's long-range capability of your own, or deep strike, or something along those lines. Like I, I, There's a lot of different solutions to that, but it is a consideration. So those are my games for the week. Uh, I'm looking forward to having more of them. I haven't had a whole lot of stories from practice because the smoke here is so thick that you could cut it with a knife and have your nice, yourself a nice little slice of smoke pie, which sounds awful. Uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not fighting in this. I'm 34 years old. I like my lungs. They're going to stick around a little bit longer. So uh, I am getting stories from other folks, though, so I'll start telling those a little bit. One of the things I, I did want to touch on before we move on, it's about time. I, I know you guys are sitting here chomping at the bit. What happens to Ref? How does this story end? I'm, I'm eager to tell you. But uh, I've had one particular uh, fan who I've been chatting back and forth with, and I really enjoy our chats. And one of the suggestions that he had made to me was that I read some verses from the Havamal uh, as, as a part of this, this series. And when he had told me, I was like, that's a great idea. I should absolutely in, in include that. It's some very cultural stuff regarding the, the Vikings and the Icelanders and all that sort of thing. Let's, let's do it. But these episodes have been so packed with information, and I've been trying to keep them of reasonable length. Like, ever since the beginning, we've been trying to come down from that, like, two-and-a-half-hour mark, and now we're down to, like, one-and-a-half hours, and that's kind of where we want it because that's a bit more reasonable <laughs> to ask of people to listen to. And far more reasonable for the editors. So I, we ran out of time. I, I didn't get the chance because I wanted to do it justice. I didn't want to just be like, oh, here's a verse, moving on. 
I wanted to be able to actually explain things and get into it. So uh, to, to that particular listener, you know who you are. I'm sorry we didn't get to it. Just know that there's a reason for it. And for the rest of you, if you'd like some exposure to uh, that kind of early Nordic religion and, and, the, and kind of the way they thought and followed, The Havamal is a really good read. But I have yacked on for entirely long enough, and it is time for us to move on to our last section of the Saga of Ref the Sly. You know, I gotta say, despite the fact that this text doesn't have a whole lot of tactical lessons for us, I do have to say that I'm a little sad that we're moving on after this, because this has just been a really fun story. I've enjoyed reading it. I've enjoyed kind of distilling it into spark notes for y'all. Again, very much encouraging you to please go and read it yourselves. It is a very entertaining read. Uh, and of course, I haven't done a whole lot of the verses that he spoke in or... But yeah, so it's 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 been very fun. I know I've said it before, but it needs to be made a movie. Y'all in Hollywood would know what to do. Get on it. But in this last section, we have three new players to introduce. The first is Granny. That's what his, his name is spelled G-R-A-N-I. Granny? Granny? We're going to go with Granny because it sounds a little bit less like Granny. So Granny is handsome. And he has the favor of the king. Therefore, the fact that he's a womanizer is kind of let slip. Imagine a man using a, a position of power to, uh, and abusing it. Never. Never would have happened. The next one is King Svein, who is the monarch of Denmark. Try saying that ten times fast. And the last is Eric, who is the brother of Grani. So we come back to our story, and Bard has just sailed away, and has gone back to Norway, where he has presented the gifts of Gunnar to the king with the hope of his friendship. And the king, being really smart, from what I can tell, he just takes a few details and, and surmises this entire thing. He's quite intelligent. But he said, don't go back. But Bard does. And that's where we pick up here. So knowing that he's been found out, Ref sends his sons to scout and to make some contact with his supporters that still remain in the area. Meanwhile, he also readies the ship that he sailed from Greenland on, the big old one uh, that was just so gorgeous. And he has supplies and goods and kin, which is to say his wife and young son, and uh, Thormund, loaded and they're to hide in a nearby fjord. His sons, however, after they're done scouting, are to stay with him at the fort. The reason for that will become clear. So Bard returns to Greenland and is welcomed by Gunnar. And they set off in good spirits because they have a bunch of guys now. And they have a plan. However, the large ship that they're sailing in is a little awkward. It's difficult to sail and maneuver down these fjords. So they leave it at the mouth of this, this fjord where the fort is in favor of taking some smaller craft in. And so they get up. They start setting up their, their little makeshift camp, and Ref once again comes to the walls, asking the news of the outside world, showing little to no concern that there are many armed fellows there with intent to do him harm. And once again, 
they answer him with, none of your business, we're not going to tell you, we're coming to kill you. And Suref disappears back into the fort. And so they start doing what they had done before, piling stacks of wood next to it to set it on fire. And the water comes out and the water comes out until it stops coming out. It slows to a trickle. One of the things they noticed on the approach, seems such a trivial thing, is that there was a shallow ditch that had been dug between the fort and the water. But this, of course, was, was no big mine. They had a mission to fulfill. And so the water starts to run out, and they know that they're about to get into this fort when there's a great crash, and the wall facing the water falls outward into this ditch, and a ship on wheels carrying Ref and his sons comes speeding out into the water. Four of Bard's men are killed instantly when the wall comes down. Nobody expected this. And so they're loose. They're in the water, and they're gone. So Gunnar remains there. He wants to see if there's anything of value inside the fort, but there is nothing. He loots nothing of value. Meanwhile, Bard and eight of his men pursue Ref. And so Ruff tells his, his sons to slow up, to kind of to make sure that they're going slow, but to make it look like they're rowing hard, to, to make the paddle splash quite a bit in the water, to give the illusion that they're going. And they want to wait for Bard to overtake them. And so Bard's ship, coming up quick, thinking that they're getting away, starts to pass, and Ref throws his spear and pins Bard to the freeboard, just shgunk, gets him. And then Stein jumps aboard and cuts the enemy's stays. These are the things like holding up the mast. And so the sail topples over and threatens to capsize the whole ship. And then they get back aboard their boat, raise their sail, and speed away. Gunnar gives chase, but is ultimately kind of burnt out on the whole thing and turns back. Bard's men return with Bard's body. And then goods are exchanged because... You know, the traders were also there, and the remaining traders head back to Norway with no special gifts, with nothing except for Bard's body. But real quick, let's go back and see what Ref is doing right now. Ref links up with his ship that has everybody on it, the big one, and they sail to Norway as well. Upon arriving there, he gives a false name, Narfi, and he asks where the king lives. I'm sure it came up casually in conversation. Oh, yeah, how's the weather? Okay, what, what do you do for, for a job? Okay, okay, how's the family? Where does the king live? You know, it, <laughs> I don't know. But he figures it out. He anchors his ship in a hidden bay and has his family come ashore with him, his wife and sons. But he leaves his men to watch the ship. They don't want to make too big of a ruckus. And they reach this market town called Nidaros, and they rent a hut there. Now Ref, excuse me, Narfi, gives his sons very strict orders not to leave Helga alone, that's their mother, not to leave her alone. And he has a black cloak made, and he ties on a white beard. The king comes to town with Granny in tow, I'm sorry, Grani in tow, and he holds a large assembly, which is a place where you know, issues are heard and talked about, where speeches are made. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a legal, like a large legal proceeding that they had. And so Narfi, of course, like I said, goes to attend this assembly, but he leaves Bjorn, 
his eldest son, to protect Helga. But Bjorn's never really been around a place like this, and there's a whole lot of commotion and cool things happening, and so he succumbs to temptation and goes out to check it out. What's the harm, right? We've been fine so far. It'll be fine. But almost instantly, after he gets out, goes away, Grani shows up. And he tells Helga that he's looking to buy a woman. She refuses. Grani starts to get handsy. But Helga, Helga's no slouch. And she begins to defend herself, doing quite well. However, Ref arrives. And then he chases Grani out, and he runs him down. And Helga's like, leave it alone. Leave it alone. We have enough problems, Ref. You have, you have driven us out of enough provinces. Leave it. But he goes. And Grani tries to talk him out of killing him. You know, says, hey, I, I've got the favor of the king. I've got the ear of the king. We can work something out. I can make sure that you have protection. We will, we will have this. All ironed out, my man. Just don't kill me. But you know our man, Ref. I'm sorry, Narfi. So Narfi says, there's no point in begging. There's no point in asking for peace. And he tries to stab him. Grani deflects several times, but ultimately Ref is too strong, and he, he kills Grani. Now, real quick, I want to pause here and, and remark on how this fight is very much different than all of the other fights that we've heard of Ref having. In this particular one, Grani is able to defend himself. None of other Ref's other opponents have managed to do that. He struck them dead immediately. First swing, boom. But here... Here, there's a back and forth. Here, even though Grani doesn't necessarily throw any promising hits of his own, there's still a chance he's still fighting back. And so I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The first one is, Ref's getting old at this point. He's not like super old, but he's getting there. And so he might be losing a, a little bit of his youthful vigor. But another thing that I notice here is this is the only one where he's gone off on tilt. Every other time that he's gotten into a fight, it has been calculated. There has been preparation for it. He's known it was coming, and he has been able to cool himself and come at it with a plan. This was unexpected. He did not expect to come back and find his wife uh, trying to defend himself, herself from one of the king's men. That was not according to plan. And so he's sloppy. I think he's sloppy here because he's emotional. As I mean, I'm not blaming him for being emotional. I would be too. I would not be in my truest form. I would, I would be definitely savage with my blows, but they would, they would not be precise in any manner. And, I, and I'm assuming all of you listening, you understand what I'm talking about. So through no fault of his own, I think that Ref was just a little sloppy here because uh, nobody else has been able to defend themselves. That's, that's just kind of my point. But he decides that he's going to stick around and report this killing. Uh, Helga, of course, I'm sure says, don't do it. And he says, go to the ship. I will return. And so he goes to the, uh, the assembly where the king is delivering a speech and then he stands up and starts delivering a speech of his own right during the king's speech. But he's using slang the entire time. He's not coming right out and saying what he did. 
but he's saying it in a bunch of like artful, twisty ways that reference mythology and history and other events that have occurred. And some cultural references, of course. And so he declares it, and then he leaves for his ship. Now, King Harold notices this. Who doesn't? Strange dude gives up in the middle of your speech and just starts babbling and then leaves. Who is this dude in a, a cloak and beard? And so he asks after him. Nobody knows. They're like, Narfi. I guess he's called Narfi. I don't know. And he calls, King Harold calls for Grani. And uh, there is no Grani. He's not answering. In the meantime, the king starts to analyze this speech that, that uh, Narfi was giving. He's dis deciphering it. Again, this, this king is smart. I'm kind of blown away with how intelligent this king can prove to be. And he, so he, he kind of just kind of goes through it and figures out, all right, Grani is dead. That much we know. And so they search around and Grani is dead and Narfi is completely gone. And knowing all of this, what's going on and piecing together what has also happened, of course, in Greenland, the king is, says, you know what? I think this is Ref. I'm pretty sure that Ref has come home to roost. Now, Ref, understanding full well that if he remains in Norway, his goose is kind of cooked, sets sail for Denmark, the fourth country in our great adventure here. And he goes straight to the king and confesses everything, tells him about how he had to leave Iceland and how he went to Greenland and then from Greenland went to Norway and all the different incidents that occurred. And the king says, you know... That all sounds reasonable to me. You, you were acting as anybody would act. You were defending yourself. It was out of necessity. And so he offers him service, says, hey, you can, you can come and work for me. We can trade. We can, we can be buds. And Ref thinks that that's agreeable. And so he sells his walrus goods. Remember that this walrus ivory and hide and, and all that sort of thing is very valuable outside of Greenland. So he sells all that. And then the king has Bjorn and Stein stay with him, kind of ward underneath him. Now, this was a fairly common practice in many cultures at the time, and it, it kind of accomplished two different things. One, Bjorn and Stein are going to get the best education and experience that they can get. They're going to be working with the king, observing how this kingdom operates. That's pretty awesome. And secondly, it definitely ensures Ref's cooperation. Because the king has two of his kids. <laughs> so again, this, is, this was a way uh, very much throughout the ancient and kind of medieval world to assure both of these things. An exchange of ideas and also insurance that everything's going to go well. So Bard's ship, going back to Norway for a second. Bard's ship returns and tells of Bard's death. And the king immediately calls an assembly because he's like, okay... This guy, Ref, he's, he's out of control. And he declares Ref an outlaw. And this is the first time that he calls him Ref the Sly. This guy has outfoxed us at every turn. So he's Ref the Sly. And they're going after him. And the king calls Eric, who is Grani's brother, if you recall. And says, gather yourself some dudes. It ended up being 60 men. And sail to Denmark. I want you to assassinate Ref. They know he's there. So Eric and his men arrive. And as they're uh, kind of looking around, they encounter this old man in a tattered cape with a white beard. But his name is Sigtrick. 
And Citric says, I will lead you to Ref. I know where he's at, but I'm a, I'm a poor old dude. I've got, I, I'm hungry. So if you give me some food and some silver, I'll definitely lead you there. And so they land and they start going to the place where Sidrig told about. He says, I need to take two of your dudes. We'll scout over there and make sure he's still there, but I need two guys for my protection. And so they head over. Now I'm going to back up real quick before we finish this story. And I'm going to pick a fight with a dead guy. Because I know that, that the, the folks in this tale are likely entirely fictional. But I got a p fight to pick with King Harold. Because King Harold has proven to be smart in every other capacity. He has managed to figure out what Ref's plans were, how his mechanisms worked. He, he's proven to be a very clever dude. However, he cannot see the futility of further pursuing and harassing Ref. This man has proven to be a terror to his enemies, even so much as he went to the town where the king was, stood up, confronted him in public, and then moseyed on out of there. This is a guy who, who has no fear and who can get where he needs to get. So I don't know why. I don't know why King Harold wasn't like, okay, he's in Denmark, not my problem anymore. We're just gonna, we're just gonna let him be at this point. There is no point in continuing to waste men pursuing this guy. But he's got a chip on his shoulder. King Harold is on tilt too. I don't think he's thinking clearly here. Because not only has one of his, his good right-hand men, Grani, been killed, but then his chief-like traitor, the guy who goes out and gets him cool stuff, he's been killed too. So understandably, he's mad. Understandably, he's resentful. But the smart thing to do here, I think, would have been to cut his losses and run. That's not what he did. Send 60 men and Eric to Denmark to kill Ref. So these two men in Citric are walking into the forest and they are suddenly ambushed. And Sigtrig throws off his cloak and his beard and ta-da! To everybody's surprise, it's Ref. Now it's not just Ref, nor the men that did the ambushing. They, an they anticipated this. I mean, and, and I figure they probably had spies, too. Spies were very common throughout every single conflict. And Ref had a lot of supporters. So it wouldn't be beyond him to have left somebody behind to kind of keep an eye on what was going on. But one way or another, King Sven and Ref knew this was going to happen. And so waiting there are two longships and 200 men. That's more than 60. And so they attack Eric. And the, the fight is very short. <laughs> it's not much of a fight at all, I reckon. And they kill all but ten. Now, Ref says, you asked me to lead you to Ref. And I did, so I fulfilled my end of the bargain. So here's what I want from you. I, don't, I want you to forswear all vengeance. No more coming after me. And then I want you to go back to King Harold. And you tell him everything that happened here. And you make sure he understands that if he keeps sending people after me, they're just going to keep dying. And so he agrees. You know, Eric's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to spare me, absolutely. I will, I will go back <laughs> and I will do ex everything you said. And here we have another first. Which is to say that every other time that Ref has gone to, to battle with somebody 
or every other time that Ref has engaged in combat, he has killed them. There's been a few who pleaded for their life, like Grani, but he didn't care. He didn't care if he was doing it through ambush, he didn't care if he was doing it over supper, or after the dude was getting out of bed. Ref kills his opponent every time, but here he doesn't. Because with age comes a little bit of wisdom, and I think Ref knows that the violence is just a cycle. That if he keeps killing the king's men, the king's going to keep sending them, and it's just going to keep going on and on and on. And Ref is old. Not super old, but I imagine he's tired of this, this, this thing, and he just wants to kind of settle in in Denmark and leave all of that behind. And so for his efforts, and for coming to his kingdom, King Sven praises Ref and lets him keep his new name. He's like, okay, from here on out, you're going to be Citrig because that's a very uncommon name in these parts, and it's also not Ref. A lot of people know the name Ref. We don't want it becoming a thing, so you're Sigtrig. Gives him a gold ring to kind of signify the bond, and also 12 farms. He had one farm back in Hild, but here he is with 12 farms now. Go Ref! Yeah. Now, one of the other things that may seem strange here his King Sven is awfully accommodating. So this weird dude sails into his kingdom. This guy has been outlawed in three other countries for killings. And he's like, hey, come on in. I want you to work for me. I want your sons to stay with me. I'm going to send two longships and 200 dudes to assist you. Who does that? Does he do that for every immigrant to his country? I mean, that's pretty cool. If he does, that's some service right there. But I doubt that's the case. Again, the, the, the saga of Ref was a legend at this point. Most people knew who he was, knew what he had done. As is evident when, you know, Bard and everybody is traveling around and they're like, we've heard these things out of Iceland. We've heard these things out of Greenland. People talk. These weren't gigantic communities. They were still fairly small. 200 people was a lot of people. If you recall, even in the age of Stirlungs, the armies didn't get much bigger than that. Of course, you're looking at some of the Roman battles, and you've got thousands upon thousands, but it's, it's all in perspective. It's all subjective in terms of size. A thousand in this time, in this place, very different than a thousand uh, between Carthage and Rome. But I imagine that King Sven is like, I want this guy on my side. <laughs> he, he's caused enough trouble. He caused a lot of upheaval in Iceland, and then he went to Greenland where he got even better at it. And then he went to Norway. Like, this guy is smart. This guy has no problem with violence. And he destroys basically everybody who crosses him. I want this guy on my side. I want him working for me. Also, I want his sons in my possession so that I can kind of keep an eye on him. That would seem to be a pretty good motivation for me. That guy over there, the most dangerous one, he's my buddy now. So after many years, Ref lives here peacefully. He's got these 12 farms. He's, he's farming them, he and Helga. It's a peaceful life. And after many years, Ref goes on a trip to Rome, presumably on a pilgrimage. And he falls ill and he dies. And he's an old man. But what of his sons? Well, Stein and Bjorn serve the king extremely well. 
They stay in his service. And the king arranges very fine marriages for them. Again, this court life is pretty good. Ref served pretty well. His sons served well. They gained a high station. And so the king rewards them, of course. Thormund, the youngest of the sons, returns to Iceland after King Harold dies. Obviously doesn't return there before then because the whole outlaw thing, vengeance, killings. Yeah. But after King Harold dies, the feud dies too. And he takes over Kvenabreka, which I think you'll recognize as where our story began. So thus ends the saga of Ref the Sly, a most unusual book from a most incredible people. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. And I, I hope you all did too. This was a really fun read. And we're going to look at some of the themes presented in this last part of the saga of Ref the Sly. And to help me in that, we have Warmaster Sumatai. So this last section of Ref the Sly definitely showed us an evolution in, in, in what he was doing. There's an evolution in, in his uh, mindset and in how he goes about things. And, but there's also an evolution in how tricky he is. There's a reason he's called Ref the Sly. And of course, in this section, he earns that moniker. But to discuss some of these themes with me today is the founder of the order that I am a part of and also the founder of our realm, Warmaster Sumatai. Hello, fans of uh, wargaming and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, so, Sumatai, would you mind uh, giving us a bit of your pedigree, your background in wargaming? Um, well, uh, you know, I was introduced to, like, Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of stuff at a very young age, and eventually that became using miniatures and stuff, and doing battles and various other sorts of games and video games and things. Uh, but I started studying martial arts when I was about 10 years old. Um, so I did that for most of my life. Eventually that led into Belgarth. Uh, Belgarth was then Dagger here at the time, but it was sword fighting and it was all the same. So that was really cool. Eventually I got into Warhammer, um, started doing a lot of that stuff a couple, three years ago, I guess. It's been a while now. COVID makes everything seem like there's a time warp. Absolutely. There's, there's absolutely like a gap. <laughs> yeah. Well, for sure. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you've, uh, you've definitely enjoyed it. You've been doing it for a while. Um, and now I've, 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 I've seen you on the field and you are not what I would call a conventional fighter. Uh, there's, there is a meta, but you don't necessarily march to that particular drum. You like ref seem to thrive on unpredictability. But unpredictability, it seems like it should have a pattern. How do you keep people off guard? Um, I, I think a big part of keeping people off guard is not appearing to be a threat at the time while you are still threatening their position. Hmm. So being close enough that you can close the gap while somebody turns to look away and then turns to look back and by that time you've put your dagger in their back or whatever needs to be done by that time you're on top of them and they have to backpedal to recover sure and that's your opportunity to to blitz them you know mm -hmm. um and you can it can be in war gaming it can be in in actual fighting whatever you know, if you have something that seems innocuous but is actually a real threat. 
Um, even insofar as individual movements where a faint, a big faint on one side covers up a small movement on the other side that kills the person. Sure. Uh, as Sun Tzu said, if you are strong, feign weakness. If you are weak, uh, feign strength. True. Um, yeah, there's definitely been times that I was down limbs and things like that and still managed to affect at least a positive uh, action for my side of the team, even though I might even be able to wield a weapon at the time. I could still appear to be enough of a threat to to make someone react, and that's enough to cut, give someone else an opportunity. So it seems that a huge part of this is making sure that your opponent does not understand what your true intention is. You're, you're absolutely uh, directly obfuscating exactly what they want. Absolutely. Um, when I'm marching, I will have my bow down, my arrow down, a loose grip, um, but it's ready. It's ready to pull up and fire. So when someone looks away, when someone's not paying attention, you can go from no threat to an immediate threat very quickly. Um, some of that takes a little planning. Absolutely. And I, and I think our listeners will probably start to have drawn uh, a series of patterns at this point. The elite fighters that we've been having on this show have given similar feedback, making sure that your body language is unthreatening, you've got your weapon lowered, that you're not being perceived as a threat. Uh, that seems to be pretty common across the board if you want to get to a higher level of not wargaming in general, whether intellectual or physical. Sure. I, I think so. I think the best warriors are, are thinkers, people who think about combat, think about whatever that kind of combat is that they are going to be engaging in, whether it's dueling another person, fighting in skirmishes, playing war games. They think about it a lot. They think about strategies. Um, effective movements. They think about what they've done wrong and remove those actions from their toolbox. For sure. And and it also seems like a somebody who's trying to be super, like at a higher level of what they do, also needs to understand that there's a time and a place for things. That even though you're obscuring your motions, that can also mean making certain motions in terms of uh, movement on the field or on the board that disguise your true intentions for instance a tactical retreat absolutely yeah i i couldn't agree more i think that i mean there that's i say there's a time and place for everything all the time people like you know spinning kicks are stupid yeah it's a terrible <laughs> intro move but there is a time and place for everything i've seen guys in mma get knocked out because a guy spinning kicked them when they least expect it mm. and it's timing you know Timing and choice of notes, just like music, you know, it it it's it is important to, well, to set those things up. And there's definitely a rhythm to combat. I, I like the fact that you made that comparison to music because there is absolutely a, a rhythm to combat that if you understand what it is, you can kind of get ahead of it. That's true. And you can you can fit in on the half beats, and that's a really important skill. Um stuttering to a half beat or skipping ahead a beat and a half mm. to overcome an opponent's speed. Maybe they're super good at blocking, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's the slow blade that gets you know, the kill, you know? Right. It's that little bit of a stutter and then a follow through. 
and their block was there, and now mm-hmm. it's moved out of position again already because of the rhythm of combat that they are expecting or used to. Well, sure. And like I said, even with motion, you're doing this because as you're moving backwards away from your opponent, you're drawing them away from whatever strength they had, whether it was a, a good board position or it was a, a nice just stance in, in combat. They have a shield at the ready. They've you know kind of made themselves invulnerable. So you bring them out of it. You put them on an even footing, and then using that rhythm, use it to strike, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, distracting your opponent, you know, various things, especially in, like, skirmish situations, like in Belagarth. Um, one thing that the Urkai did when we had enough numbers for it was we all carried a javelin. <laughs> and when we would engage another unit, as soon once we got within charge range, we would unleash those javelins. And... Even if you don't kill anybody or you maim a couple of people, everybody is distracted by that. And that sure. lets your flankers flank out, you know, without being noticed. Because now all of a sudden, the main group makes a bunch of noise and charges. Now everybody's attention is right there. And the people who are on the outside know that and they can use that advantage. For sure. I'm also getting a bit of an image in my head of like... When a Gandalf and the reinforcements are moving down into Helm's Deep and the sun comes up over the ridge and the orcs are distracted for just a second. Yeah. Just a second. And that's what it took for for them to be able to get in there and disrupt their formation. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, I've seen it happen on the field from multiple units. I've seen, you know, the BLF do it, the, you know, the God Squad do it, you know, just, you know, pile into a group and, or make enough of a distraction that other people can use that advantage to strike. Sure. On something like Warhammer 40k too, I would think that um, a similar use of this tactic would be in uh, deep striking. Like just deep striking a bunch of units around your opponent, getting them confused before your main main force gets there. Sure. Yeah, that's a great way to to either outflank or hammer an anvil an opponent. and then now, at least now in Warhammer, there many units have that ability to strike from off board, um, whether it's from the sideline or wherever, right. depending on the individual ability. Um, so a lot of those things can be used to distract or create a flanking situation, bring us a, a small but large enough threat in from a flank to siphon off their forces and weaken their main force. You expect that unit, those units to get killed, but that gives your main force the advantage over their smaller force. Sure, sure. Uh, and by the way, listeners, I'm not sure if, uh, if you heard it earlier, but our dear Sumatai is, one of the armies he plays is Drukari. Oh, yeah. So these hit-and-run things, this, uh, this ambush tactic, he's quite familiar with it. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah, it's... It, I mean, I've never been one for thinking that combat needs to be stand up honorable and straightforward unless it's in a, a ring sure you know i don't think that's combat that's sport right and it's a very different thing and i treat wargaming more like combat i'm there to win sometimes mm-hmm. that requires losses sometimes that requires sacrifice sure to create an opportunity you know and it's the same in in any real combat situation right Right, if you stand on, on ceremony, as it were, uh, it's not going to go well. It didn't for the British. No, 
No. <laughs> I mean, you got to go for the throat when you can and use what tactics work. And, yes. and like you said with the British, they did great when the Continentals were trying to stand up and fight them line v. line. Uh, the Redcoats, that's what they did. Yeah, and they were great at it. Yeah. So we changed tactics and they didn't. Nope, yeah. We, we decided to go guerrilla with it and they were like, oh, we're going to keep marching in lines and... Mm. Uh, it didn't work out. The Soviets no. moving into Afghanistan were like, we're still going to keep our, our pretty rigid, our rigid uh, command structure and just like unit structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should have, I mean, they couldn't really play the insurgents game, but they should have tried at least a little more. No, I mean, it, same thing happened to, to Hitler trying to invade Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, we won World War II because Russia destroyed the Nazis. Right. Pretty much. Absolutely. You know, and, and that was the same thing. There was a lot of guerrilla tactics that were being used until Russia could build up the forces to to actually field a combat force. Now, it's interesting you say that. That actually uh, kind of brings me to our next topic. When you're dealing with a group as large as the Urukai, which, which it is, at one point it was one of the largest units in the West. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the numbers are now. Much smaller. I, we probably don't have some 20, maybe 30 people stretched across where at one point we were at probably 60 to 70 overall. Sure. Sure. And that, I mean, fielding a good 40 people on the field. Absolutely. But uh, when you're that large, you also become a target. And to really accomplish anything, you need allies. Because I remember being in the Urukai in the early days when it was still growing and when we got to a certain point, everybody just came after us first. Absolutely. Because they knew if they didn't, we were going to uh, make some trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For them. Um, yeah. And when you know that you are going to be a target, when you know that you're going to be engaged, then you have to do something to press the battle and push it to your, to your drum. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, you will be overwhelmed by what's coming at you sure you know whether it's 3v1 people or 3v1 units Mm -hmm. even if they're smaller units that amount of antagonism from multiple directions again it splits your forces and that makes it easier for everybody to 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 get gets get at the meaty parts sure sure um and and to prevent that if i like if i'm recalling correctly the forsaken and the pirate group under Rumbeard, I can't remember what they were called. Um, but they were kind of brought in as auxiliaries. Absolutely. Um, we, Yeah, we did. We bolstered our forces um, and basically had, had more because we weren't fighting five or six other individual units. We were fighting against another army mm-hmm. that then would break down a fight amongst themselves once we were dead. Right. Um, especially in things like you know, uh, the, the banner battles and things at Chaos Wars where it was for a trophy, basically. So, you know, people, they they really cared about it. So they, they banded together to make sure we couldn't win. Right. You know, but we changed our tactics. We held to the edges of the battlefield where mm-hmm. we couldn't be flanked from multiple sides as easily. We'd back ourselves into a corner and make people have to come through our wall. Oh, which is your, which was the strong point that Urukai shield wall was something that was drilled and was absolutely a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, yeah, we we practiced. I mean, you know, we took extra time out of our day to go off on our own field and practice shield walling and javelin launches and and all of those kinds of things to to make our team better. 
and in events too. Like uh, time was taken to make sure that all the groups could work together because yeah. it was spread out over Montana, Idaho, Utah, all that good stuff. So it was good to make sure that everybody was uh, on the same page. Yeah, cohesive, for sure. So when bringing these disparate groups together, because the the culture of the that pirate group was a little different than the Urukai. Same thing with the Forsaken. They had a little bit different unit cultures, their way of going about things. How did you bring them in as allies? Um, I mean, as as far as that way, I mean, as far as being able to bring them in as allies, we were all friends. Right. Off the field. We all mostly hung out and camped together. Um, and... But as far as how to fit them into the team, mm-hmm. we had to just look at what their strengths and weaknesses were mm. and then and use those things. Um, you know, Rumbeard's pirates were very wild and untamable, so there was no point in trying to do it. We just set them on a flank and let them go to town. Right. You know. Um, let them be shock troops, basically. Right, you know. And, you know, the other... The other guys, they were a little bit more cohesive. They were a little bit more together. Um, and frankly, with Nash leading them, they were frightening. Right. You know, he was a he was a big, scary guy, and he really knew how to use that to push the field and make a presence. And how to wield his force adequately, exactly. too. Yep, and to direct what he had where it needed to go. So we just let them take either flank, and we used the, our main force to push the middle. So true auxiliaries then, where, where you weren't trying to conform them to the rest of like your unit, but letting them operate, you know, as, as any other auxiliary force in history. Yeah, pretty much. You know, we all took our command from our central commander, mm-hmm. our, our warlord. Um, usually we had the, those unit leaders usually stuck close to the central group so they could relay those commands out. Mm-hmm. Um, but they commanded their forces and we commanded ours and, you know, we just, it's just like fighting side by side by next to one other person. Once Mm -hmm. you get used to how they fight and what they do and how they move, then you can match that and use it to your advantage. I always loved the fact that, uh, the Urukai had the policy in place to like echo orders down the line. Like when somebody's saying, you know, we need to move right, everybody shouts move right so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of confusion when we first started getting into larger numbers. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of people turning around at the wrong time and going the wrong way and you know, you end up losing a third of your force all of a sudden because they turned around to fight a group instead of just moving forward into the next group and past them. Allowing that other group to uh, get lo- local numeric superiority. They didn't outnumber you all as a group. Right. But that little third of the force for sure. Exactly. And then, you know, so the the idea of, of repeating commands, echoing what was said was done so that everybody heard it. In the midst of battle, you can't hear stuff a lot of the time. Even in our battles where it's just, you know, foam, we're not steel on steel or anything. But there's a lot of noise. There's shouting and yelling. And, and so a lot of the time you, you're so intent on what you're doing, you may not hear that. But if everybody echoes it, eventually you'll hear it. For sure. I mean, there's only so loud that even Forkbeard back in, in those days could have been. I mean, he's another powerhouse of the West, but oh, for sure. man was loud. 
Very much so. But even at that, you know, when you're in the thick of battle, you aren't listening to the sounds around you. You are being aware of what is coming at you physically. Sure. Um, and a lot of times it's really easy to to lose yourself in that. And you don't hear anything. Even somebody loud behind you yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've oftentimes found myself halfway through a battle and, and think like, I don't remember hearing anything, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of weird to, to think back on it. And it's like a blank tape and it's just a film with no soundtrack. For sure. For sure. Uh, that's always weird when you come from a, a really, a unit that has a lot of command and control in that way. And then suddenly you're without it. And it's just like, oh, why is it so quiet? Nobody's hollering. It's true. Um, and I mean, we even had, had special orders for like standing orders for when the unit gets down to a certain size or when we become overwhelmed and the unit gets broken up, you are then to do this thing, hook up with one or two other people, mm-hmm. start forming wolf packs, look for your other unit mates, try to get, you know, small groups back together and then work with each other to wolf pack the other units. Well, and, and, you know, those lessons and that idea would really have to come from the process that the Urubakai must have gone through in the last several years. Because to go from a unit that was very large in terms of fieldable numbers mm-hmm. down to the numbers that you were talking about, those same tactics aren't going to work anymore. Yeah, it, it's true. And, I mean, I, and that's part of the reason that why the Urukai isn't nearly the force on the field that we used to be because... To be quite frank, a lot of us got older. We just don't care about winning the battles that near as much as we used to. Sure. You know? Um, so we go out to fight for fun, and and that's that. And we never really changed our tactics that much after we lost half of our force on the field, you know? Sure. Um, and and that skirmishing stuff, that's for the for the kids. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't like to run. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. But for the Urukai to be in a, like a truly effective force on the field again, they would certainly need to reinvent themselves, don't you think? It's true. Um, in fact, uh, the last Chaos Wars that we had, um, all of the Urukai leadership has now passed from the old guard to new people. Hmm. So none of the original High Council are, are part of the Urukai leadership formally anymore. Hmm bunch of new blood in there i i wouldn't call them new most of the people have been in the unit for a decade right right i just mean like new to those leadership positions yes yeah absolutely um and i think that's what it's going to take to reinvent the unit and bring that that swell back up that happens with most units sure you know yeah there's always there's always a period of lull Um, sure you know much like if a a codex, like right now I'm waiting for my Gene Stealer codex to come out. And compared to the ninth edition codexes, the eighth edition codex is terrible. Sure. And I mean, it wasn't that great to begin with. Gene Stealer cult has never been ranked very high, mm. but I don't really want to field them until they have that strength again. I mean, I'm, sure. I still got to build all these models. He was he observing my pile of shame that I finally yes. have for the first time in my career. Uh, I got that builder's block. We were discussing that too, where you just have like the, the paralysis that comes with like, I've got so much to build. 
where do I start? And then you just don't. <laughs> start, I start with captains, just individual model. Oh yeah, dude, I've, I've already got all the, the HQs put together because oh. they look oh. so cool. Well, you're already past that point. Now you're to the hard part. Yeah. I don't to tell you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the fun part's over. Oh. No, and, and uh, through those periods, the, you know, the Urukai has kind of seen this, this swell and then a down and hopefully another swell again, like you said, getting this, sure. these fresh ideas, these, uh, these more driven kind of uh, folks that, like you said, are more willing to be on the field, mm-hmm. uh, more motivated in that sure. direction. Um, and so, you know, that kind of, that, that's a growth. That's a growth, but like is precipitated by a conflict. The reason that there's that bleeding of numbers or bleeding of strength from something is because there's something kind of, there's a conflict going on within it. There's some sort of divisions for whatever reason, or, or a lack of vision, like a singular vision, or something along those lines. True. Um, I think that is somewhat true. I think a lot of what happened to the Urukai is, um, you know, Valis moved away. Mm. Um, Magnus got hurt pretty bad and couldn't come out for a long time, and when he could, he couldn't fight very much. True. He doesn't really come out too much anymore. Um, some of the older... Members of the Urukai have gone on to other games, other forms of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I th- those things kind of happen with every unit. But, you know, we never, you know, it's kind of like one of those things, you know, we were the cool kids on the block for a while. Sure. You know, and, and you know, we had rad parties and, and everybody thought we were super cool. And a lot of people really wanted to join the Urukai. And mm-hmm. so our numbers swelled. And then... You know, after a while, things stagnate and people fall away for one reason or another. Some of it was vision, you know, like Hakan and Dicky and those guys left the unit because it just it just wasn't for them. And that's sure. okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Not every unit is for everybody, you know. So, and I think that our, our vision as a unit, as that happened, you know, we kind of, we... We set some goals and we accomplished them. Mm-hmm. You know, we won the banner twice. Right. You know, and and that kind of stuff. And after that, we kind of hung all hung up our laurels and we're like, cool, we did the thing. You know, and and a lot of the newer guys were like, yeah, but we want to do the thing. And we were like, yeah, but we already did the thing, so we're gonna relax this year. <laughs> You know, and then we kept getting older and relaxing more each year and not being on the field as much as we should, you know, and that we did lose members because of that. Hmm. Um, and the people who stayed were the diehard, you know, orcs for life guys. Um, and I think those are the guys to take it to the next generation. Sure. You know that they have the dedication to do it. Absolutely. You know, and they've been in the game long enough and I think they'll, they'll do something. That's a good vote of confidence. Um, do you think it's possible to sustain indefinite growth? Or are these periods, these lulls, these these dips of activity, are they just sort of part of the process? Uh, they are the life cycle of any unit um, or any game. You see it in, in Warhammer 2 units come up, or individual units, individual groups of space marines or whatever different armies come up in the meta they're super strong for a little while um but then something comes along 
or the rules change or whatever, you know, in, in Warhammer, things change and and something else is more powerful or they get nerfed down. Right. They become weaker, you know, and that's the life cycle of, of every unit I've ever seen. Hmm. You know, the EBF got pretty okay size for a little while and then got down to very few people and then became a pretty big unit. Mm-hmm. Um, a BOF was a few people. It got big in the east and then kind of went down a little bit and then it grew up and then it grew out in the west like really big exploded you know yeah um you know our unit really became our orc unit became large because we associated ourselves with a brand right we adopted the 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 urukai brand from the east um which was very well based on on kind of the lotr representation of urukai in, in a lot of ways yeah they really wanted to um, emulate that togetherness of the Urukai in the movies, where the the armors were all matching. The, the you know, even though it wasn't necessarily based on those armors, mm-hmm. they had a standard for how their armor was built, how, how it was colored, all of that kind of stuff. It was all very militarized. The guy who started the unit was a military guy, right? Right. Um, out west here we were a little bit more hippy dippy about things um what? the west being hippy dippy that, that was still back in the day of the hippie, days of the uh hippie skirts and flails and uh and we weren't giving them up and you know so we were the western urukai and they were the eastern urukai and that was okay um but it definitely really helped us uh, branch out and get a lot of members right toward the beginning mm-hmm. um and that gave us the people to to do other cool stuff, you know, we had some crazy ideas and, and, uh, you know, some of them turned into traditions. <laughs> the, uh, the, what is now the, the war masters pub, which was originally just Urukai pub night, mm-hmm. uh, originally started because we wanted to win banner battles. Right. So the night before banner battles, we bought a bunch of booze. We got all the unit and there had been a little salt at the event. There was some, People where there were some bad attitudes going along, especially mm-hmm. from some of the units from back east and west. Um, and we thought, you know, the best way to get rid of that is just get everybody drunk and make them hang out together. <laughs> so we went around and we invited all of the, the leadership of every unit, all of the unit leaders that were there and their liaisons and, and you know, others. Um, and they were invited to a VIP pub and... Uh, then we eventually invited the entire event into the pub. Um, pretty much got everybody that would wanted to drink really drunk. And uh, it really didn't help us too much the next day with banner battles, but it did start a tradition. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It almost seemed, when you began that story, it almost seemed there was a particular battle in the, the battle, like the, the Three Kingdoms period in China where there's a guy who delivers a bunch of rum to the soldiers the night before they're supposed to attack, and then everybody's just kind of off their off their game, a little hungover. Um, and so, I mean, the attack goes really well. Uh, and it's, like, when you started t- saying it, I was like, ooh, sneaky. Yeah, there was a similar thing with, uh, I think it was in, in the Arabia area somewhere, um, where they delivered honey to the soldiers, but the honey had been allowed to ferment. Mm. Um, so the soldiers got drunk off the fermented honey, 
um, that they ate and used, and then, then the, the guys who delivered it to them all attacked. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Again, this unpredictability, obfuscating your true intention, all very important. Uh, Sumatai, we didn't even get to half the uh, topics that I wanted to because, <laughs> as you probably heard, listeners, he and I can talk together for a while. We have no lack of subjects to, <laughs> to touch on. But Sumatai, it was great having you on the show. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, you know, it was a pleasure for us too. But it's time to move on to our study of the War of Cod. That sounds like it's for fish. And so, our study of Icelandic military history comes to a close with a small synopsis of the Cod Wars. And yes, you're hearing that right. C-O-D, Cod Wars. When I was kind of bringing up some of the subject matter earlier with my wife, just sort of babbling excitedly as I do, she said, you mean like the fish? And I said, yeah, exactly, exactly like the fish. And it may seem inconsequential. The name may seem silly to the ear, but remember that the majority of conflicts that have occurred in history have occurred over territory and over resources. Without that need, most people are pretty peaceful, but it's the need for more land, more, more area, and more resources that drives human beings into conflict for the most part. And this, this conflict was no different. However, it was, it was a very long conflict, as we'll, we'll see here in a second. Now, the name Cod Wars is relatively new. It was first coined by a British journalist in the mid-20th century to describe a long series of militarized interstate disputes between Iceland and Britain over territory, specifically over fishing territory in the North Atlantic. This problem started all the way back in the 14th century when fishing boats from England first began harvesting from the waters off of Iceland. Now, this is not good. Again, people have their territory, and as one person harvests in a place, it depletes resources. You don't want to harvest too close to each other, because then nobody gets a good catch. It, it really can put a stress on economy, and armed conflict starts to arise during these times. But always, always, it ends with unrestricted British access to Icelandic waters, and that's, that's generally the case. Other countries occasionally get involved in these conflicts, but Britain has a great navy. If you know much about military history, you'll know that uh, for a good while there, Britain was unmatchable on the waves. And this only kept getting pronounced as the years went on, especially in the 19th century, when demand for seafood rises sharply. World economy, the world trade, started really kicking off at that point, and especially trade uh, across the Atlantic was, was starting to become far more profitable and far more common. And so these fish were very important. They were widely sought after, not just for the local benefit of the countries catching them, but also for export. So this, this starts to get really, really nasty, like in terms of feelings between Britain 
and Iceland, because steam power at this point has given ships wider range. More ships can travel further, and therefore you've got more British vessels coming into Icelandic waters. And the 1980s show uh, uh, naval power. Both powers demonstrated their naval prowess at different times in the 1980s. Some through arrests. For instance, the Icelanders were going out and arresting British trawlers. And some just from the sheer bigness. The, the British would occasionally sail their large fleet back and forth just to remind the Icelanders that it was there. And so this kind of continues. But for the most part, you know, Britain is able to win out just from its size and its ability to intimidate its smaller neighbor. But after World War I, you see a rise in international attention to various affairs. Uh, for instance, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, also known as NATO, was established on April 4th, 1949, and the International Courts of Justice were established in 1945. So these things were all fairly new, and, and even after World War I, there started to be pressure being put up, up, upon Britain to, to not bully so much. And Iceland starts to see its opportunity. And it begins to use these legal rulings, some of the, the precedents set in the international courts of justice, or some of the treaties or rules that have been put down by the UN, and begins to expand unilaterally. Now, over history, there's been 10 conflicts that most historians can agree on, 10 different COD wars. But these ones, the, the three that occurred most recently, are the ones that we're going to focus on for the course of this study. Now, this expansion that Iceland was doing was ruining or was ending 500 years worth of British traditions and British fishing. And over the course of this, thousands of jobs were lost. And the northern economy of, of the UK was devastated because of this. However, Iceland was able to get away with all of this because of its location. It was right there on the GI-UK gap. Now, in World War II, submarine warfare had really kind of uh, become more sophisticated. The Germans were sending U-boats out. Um, you had a lot of Soviet production in there. You had a lot of American innovation going on. And so by the time that the Cold War kicks off, very shortly after World War II, you've got some, some really interesting subs, some very developed submarines that are being used in far higher quantity. And so this gap right here is a place where the subs can come and go freely from the northern ports of Russia. And so controlling for, for NATO, controlling this gap is extremely important because it keeps those subs, in theory, on the other side there. So that location that Iceland has is extremely important. And there's also a NATO military base that's there where they can kind of observe things. And they've used these things as leverage multiple times. So let's look at a couple of these instances. The first Cod War took place between the 1st of September, 1958, through the 11th of March, 1961. This started with Iceland unilaterally expanding its fishing territory. All members of NATO opposed this action. There was, of course, a central committee, and a, well, not a central committee, that sounds, that's very Soviet communist, but there was a, a board that helped guide members in what they were supposed to do. There's not a whole lot of punitive action that the board can take outside of um, 
tariffs and embargoes and perhaps uh, alienation of that particular state. But Iceland was kind of free to do what it chose here. And so they, they chose to expand. Of course, Britain did not like this. Britain didn't recognize the validity of the expansion, and they certainly were not in favor of this expansion. And so they begin to involve their own ships in the matter, and you start to see a lot of minor conflict occurring. Throughout the Cod Wars, only one fatality occurred, but there was a lot of property damage because ship ramming was extremely common, and the use of non-explosive rounds was frequently common as well as were the arrests. The uh, Coast Guard, the Icelandic Coast Guard, was frequently making arrests of trawlers that they found in their territory, which often led to these conflicts. And so this, this continues. This is a, you know, a three-year process back and forth of trying to establish some sort of dominance in the region. Britain trying to assert its right to fish there, Iceland trying to assert the fact that it's their water and that they can choose to keep people out of it. And eventually, Iceland threatens to withdraw from NATO. And again, this is a big deal. If Iceland withdraws from NATO, that means that they might become part of the Warsaw Pact. And if they become part of the Warsaw Pact, the Soviets have a direct line directly into the Atlantic, straight from their northern ports. Now, in theory, if Iceland even became neutral, this could be a possibility because the Soviets might just pay them for the honor of passing through their territory. But this scares the people at NATO. They say, we, 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 can't, uh, we can't have this happening. We can't have Iceland you know, ceding from the organization. And so they give Iceland a favorable ruling. Iceland is, is able to you know, get what it wants. The second Cod War starts very much the same. Starts on the 1st of September, 1972, and lasts until the 8th of November, 1973. You'll be wondering, both of these conflicts started on September 1st, and that, that is when the Icelanders were able to use legal precedents in UN rulings and such to cause a change in policy, to justify it as being legal. And so that's, that's the reasoning for that uh, time, that date that seems to be reoccurring. And once again, Iceland unilaterally expands its territory. The government is like, all right, we're going to vote amongst ourselves. We're expanding. But the Western European states are not okay with this. And this is not just NATO. Notice how I said the Western European states. Even states that were excluded from NATO were also <laughs> not in favor of Iceland doing this. And, and the Warsaw Pact opposed it as well, which is very interesting, because in the last conflict, in the first Cod War, at the end of it, um, Great Britain puts heavy tariffs, heavy, heavy, heavy tariffs on exports or on, on imports of fish from Iceland. As their closest neighbor, this starts to really affect the Icelandic economy. They need to sell, otherwise they've got a lot of distance to try to ship. And so the Soviet Union starts to step in at that point, and it's like, hey... We'll buy your fish. And the U.S. is like, no, 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 no. You're going to sell to us. You're going to sell to Spain. You're going to sell to Italy. But, like, please, please keep the Soviets out of this. And so, like I said, when, when they threaten to withdraw from NATO, it's not just, okay, they're not in it anymore. It's, it's international interest. NATO has a very, very um, invested interest in keeping Iceland 
involved with, with what they're doing. But the fact that everybody opposes this, even the Warsaw Pact, who is at odds with NATO, that says something. However, Iceland is supported by the African states. And the Icelandic prime minister uh, kind of, because you might be like, okay, Iceland's way up here, the African states are down here. What, what exactly do they have in common? Well, the Icelandic prime minister says, you know, we, we have a common cause against imperialism and colonialism. 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 There we go. So he said, they, they say we've got a common interest in this. We're fighting against kind of the same people for some of the same reasons, some of the same reasons. Uh, and so they've, they've kind of support one another. During this conflict, Icelandic Coast Guard ships begin using net cutters on British trawlers. Now, this might seem like a small thing, almost like a hee-hee, I got you sort of thing, but the implications of this are huge. These trawlers are moving through with their nets, collecting so much fish, just a ridiculous amount of fish within these nets. And so every time their nets get cut, not only does that massive catch escape, but the trawler loses out on quite a bit of money. Those nets are not cheap. And so this is, you know, this is a kind of, this is a very aggressive act when you look at it in terms of like economy and finances. And so this starts to escalate the situation. Like we said, there's a lot of ramming incidents. There is a lot of, you know, firing across the bow, even firing into ships with non-explosive rounds. And, and the only casualty of any of the Cod Wars, or at least these Cod Wars that we're talking about in the 20th century, occurs on the 29th of August, 1973. And it occurs when there's a collision. And that collision floods an area where a welder was working on previous damage. And that welder is electrocuted. As a welder, that thought terrifies me. I mean, it's enough that, again, as a welder, you get shocked. Uh, I don't know. All the time. And I mean, it depends. Like, if it's warm where you're working, which, you know, you're working around molten metal, it can be. And you're sweating into your clothes. Well... Electricity loves that. So any welder has had countless shocks throughout the course of their career. But this, this is something else entirely. Yeah, that freaks me out. But this was about a one-year period, just over a one-year period. But there were 55 ramming incidents over the course of this one-year period. This was seen as a necessity by the British because, again, Iceland represents a a threat in a lot of ways. They don't seem that committed. They've used their position as leverage before. And so Britain says, we need to control these waters to like just to, for protection, to be able to contain the Soviet Union. Of course, the Icelanders don't see it that way. And the British are also doing it to protect jobs. Remember that the, the shipping industry there in, in the Northern UK is really crucial to that area. That's one of the few things they got going on. It's not very arable land. Like there is farming, but because of the, the rolling hills and the broken up expanse of Scotland, it's hard. It's hard to actually properly farm on any sort of large scale basis. Fishing, that can be done, but you have to have the waters to do it. So that's what Britain is doing here. But this conflict, just this year long conflict, cost the British millions of pounds. And it partially disables the North Atlantic fleet. 
That's how escalated it got. It was crazy. Vessels were being fitted specifically for ramming. They were given these, these, uh, these wooden prows, these almost collapsible, but they were strengthened wooden prows in order to be better at ramming. This was a serious conflict. It's impressive to me that only one person died. You would think with these large ships slamming into each other that somebody else would have gone overboard, but I guess their crews were well-trained. Because dang, that's a lot. And so this one was, was very impactful, but again... It ends with a ruling in favor of the, of the Icelanders. Because, yet again, they threatened to pull out of NATO, <laughs> which, which seems to be a fairly common thing for them. But also, also, there's a threat to expel troops from the UN base, from the, the US UN base that exists there on Iceland, a crucial base for controlling the area. So they, they get uh, a favorable ruling once again. The Third Cod War occurred between 1975 and 1976. Once again, there was a lot more rammings and a lot more net cutting, and the, the uh, international community was starting to get really tired of this. I mean, it was really disruptive to trade, it's very disruptive to the area, and not, at this point, there's not just cod in that area, there's a lot of oil in the region as well that is being scouted out for future drilling opportunities. So the risk to international trade and the risk to the environment was very much felt. And so throughout NATO-mediated sessions, an agreement is finally reached on the 1st of June, 1976. And so throughout the course of these conflicts, there was not a single one of them that Iceland lost. If you'll see, because they were leveraging their position and kind of had the support not of the uh, ex- like the expansion of their waters, but certainly in the little guy versus the big guy fight uh, that was occurring between their navies, it definitely worked out in their favor. And so this kind of concludes the Cod Wars. Again, it was a it was an interesting study. I did not expect it to be as involved as it was. I was kind of thinking, okay, Cod Wars, I'm going to get through that pretty quick. But I I've been working on this material for a couple of weeks. And I've started to realize the gaps in my knowledge concerning North Atlantic territorial disputes. So that's something for me to work on. But uh, talking about the future a little bit, we're going to be moving on to Klauswitz's On War, which is one of the preeminent military books ever. Like this, this is one of the ones that's held up with Sun Tzu as one of the most influential and most accurate, most useful military science books around. Because where Sun Tzu speaks in metaphor and like broad ideas in order to get his point across, Klauswitz has a book that is, you could build a house with it, and it is very detailed. It goes down into the minutia of warfare, down into the very much the psychology of warfare. And so I'm very much looking forward to sharing this one with you. Our, our next episode is going to be the introduction into the world of Clausewitz, which is a very different Prussia than the one that we saw under Frederick. And then we're going to be moving into the book itself, which it's a big one. It's going to take us a while, but uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this adventure with all of you and looking forward to seeing you next episode. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, 
you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.